Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. All right, we've got quite the show today. But before we get into it, I wanted to mention that support at patreon.com slash faithincapital is super helpful. If you're a regular listener, it'd be great if you could chip in a buck or two a month for all the work and effort I'm putting in the show. Also, iTunes ratings and reviews help people find the show as well. Thanks for taking a minute to hop on your app and drop a five-star rating and review. Much appreciated. Okay, so in the previous episode... We saw that Jesus' particular understanding of and faithfulness to the summarization of the Torah put him in an irresolvable tension with the religious authorities who primarily served the interests of the economic and political elites of his day. Loving God and neighbor was apparently irreconcilable to the first and greatest commandments lived out and embodied by the wealthy and the powerful. We also discussed the first and greatest commandment of capitalism— the relentless drive to produce and accumulate more and more wealth, or, as Marx put it, the ceaseless movement of profit-making. Yet, we also said that this commandment is not something capitalist bosses, banks, lenders, investors, developers, and landlords can simply opt out of. The coercive nature of market competition compels them to outcompete one another by accumulating capital faster than their competitors, If they don't, they risk getting pushed out of the market entirely. Moving forward, the following episodes of the series will focus on the relational consequences and lived realities that tend to materialize in a capitalist world because, above all, our governments, our communities, and our places of work must submit to the one true god of capitalism, economic growth. Our relationships are profoundly shaped by capital's faithfulness to endless economic expansion. And we're going to talk about the relationships between creditors and debtors, landlords and tenants, the U.S. mainland and hyper-exploited communities like the U.S. colony of Puerto Rico, and between capitalists and planet Earth. A world whose primary goal is to produce more wealth this quarter than it did last quarter, to accumulate more value this week than it did last week, will materially impact our personal, familial, communal, and global relationships, as well as our relationships with the rest of the beloved creation. But to start off the series, I want us to think about how the first and greatest commandment of capitalism impacts our relationships at work. To do so, we've got three things to consider. Number one, the original creation and continual reproduction of the working class. Number two, the capitalist way of dividing and organizing our workplace relationships into two groups, employers and employees. And then the third thing would be how exactly employers, given their exclusive and absolute power at our places of work, end up undermining the well-being and livelihood of working peoples. The entirety of this episode is an attempt to show why workers and employer capitalists are not at all equals. Their relationship is fundamentally hierarchical, 
and why Christian communities ought to struggle on the side of labor against capital. Let's get to it. In order for the social economic system of capitalism to have emerged in the feudal English countryside some 400 years ago, in order for capitalism to have become the dominant way of producing and distributing goods and services across the entire world today, and in, an, in order for capitalism to continue its reign into the future over our relationships at work, at home, in our communities, internationally, and between human beings and the planet, Capitalism had to originally create something that had not previously existed. And that special something is the working class. The vast majority of human beings have not always had to sell their labor to employers or owners of capital, literally for a living. Before capitalism, the majority of people did not commodify their own labor power by selling it to others. And that is simply because there wasn't a need to do so. The need of the masses to have the few exploit their labor by paying them wages that are less than the value they actually produce had to originally be created and again, continually reproduced. If workers didn't need owners of capital to employ them, elite families like the Waltons would not have ever been able to privately and exclu exclusively accumulate some $191 billion by way of buying goods produced by cheap labor in China and paying their Walmart workers in the U.S. starvation wages. And if you think starvation wages is a little too extreme, consider the fact that Walmart has had the audacity to put on food drives for their own workers and have asked their employees to bring in canned goods for their fellow co-workers. Apparently, families of Walmart workers are struggling to eat. And what do the Waltons do? They ask their employees to step up and give to a charitable cause. Of course, Walmart is not alone in paying their workers starvation wages. According to an article published by Business Insider, in 2017, nearly one in three Amazon employees in Arizona were on food stamps or lived with someone who was. That was 1,800 people. And in both Pennsylvania and Ohio, one in 10 Amazon employees were on food stamps, another 1,000 human beings. But I digress. The point of this is to say that capitalism had to create something that didn't previously exist and continues to depend upon the reproduction of a particular need, the need of the majority to have the minority exploit their labor for wages. Because everything in this world is commodified. Transportation, shelter, healthcare, formal education, food, water, insulin, inhalers. If you want to access the most basic necessities for human existence, let alone human flourishing. You have to exchange money for it. You have to purchase it on the market. There is no opting out of the consumer market. It's either buy the basic necessities with money or people in their dependence will die. Workers need someone to exploit them. Commodifying their own labor and being exploited by employers is how the working class survives. And that total dependence 
is very good news for owners of capital looking for human labor to exploit. If you'd like to read a little bit about this historical transition, here are three books I'd recommend that in different ways get at the subject. Number one, An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Number two, The Origin of Capitalism, A Longer View by Ellen Mikesons Wood. And three, Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation by Sylvia Federici. Although Federici's work is a bit denser than the first two, so I, I wouldn't recommend starting there. I'd, I'd recommend uh, first Dunbar, Ortiz, and Wood. Now, before we move on to our second part of the episode and discuss capitalism's class structure and its workplace relations, let me define exploitation for a minute because I want us to be on the same page here. For lots of folks, saying that capitalist wage labor is exploitative might sound a little outlandish. However, with a particular definition of exploitation, I hope it will no longer seem outlandish at all. All right, so if you're in the car or at the office or chilling at the coffee shop, crank up the volume so the folks around you can hear why wage labor under capitalism is exploited labor. Throughout human history, there has always been a portion of every community who has produced the goods and services that the community consumes in order to survive. And I say a portion because babies can't produce stuff for their communities, nor are many of our elders able to contribute after a certain point as well. Which means that the portion of the population who produces these goods and services can't just produce for themselves they have to produce extra goods and services, what Marxian analysis refers to as surplus, so that everyone in the community gets to eat, has clothes to wear, has a roof over their head, or what have you. And when people produce the goods beyond what is necessary for their own survival and their own reproduction, Marxists call the performance of this extra work surplus labor. Because that's what their work is literally doing, producing surplus goods or value beyond what is needed simply to re reproduce themselves. Now, most people today would agree that under feudalism, serfs were exploited by lords, right? And under slavery, slaves are exploited by their masters. But what exactly makes these relationships exploitative? Human labor is exploited when those who produce the surplus goods and services, those who perform the surplus labor, are not also the appropriators and distributors of the surplus. Let me say it like this. You know people are being exploited when the laborers are not also the people distributing the profits their own labor produces. For example, under feudalism, Lords took the surplus goods their serfs worked up in the fields and distributed it however they saw fit. The producers of the extra goods were not the appropriators and distributors of that surplus. Similarly, under slavery, masters take everything that their slaves produce and distribute the profits how they see fit. Again, the producers are not the appropriators and distributors of the surplus. And under capitalism, as we'll kind of talk pretty intensely throughout the rest of the episode, employers immediately appropriate and possess 
everything that workers produce on the job and then distribute the profits however they see fit. The producers are not the distributors. There's a division, meaning wage labor under capitalism, like the labor of serfs and slaves, is exploited labor. The one group takes all the fruits of other people's labor and gives them a lesser portion in return. That's called exploitation. But let's circle back to this a little bit later. Now that we've mentioned capitalism's creation of working class dependence upon owners of capital for employment, and we've also discussed why wage labor is by definition exploited labor under capitalism, let's spend some time talking about capitalism's class structure and its unique way of organizing workplace relations into two main groups, employers and employees. The capitalist class structure ends up being way bigger than just our workplace relations. But for this episode, we're going to zoom in and focus on the employer-employee divide. At the majority of our places of work, capitalism divides us into two groups, a minority of employers and a majority of employees. It doesn't have to be this way, and it certainly isn't some natural or divinely ordained way of producing goods and services. It simply is how capitalism does it. The capitalist way of organizing our workplace relationships into employers and employees is a division between labor and capital. Let's talk about the differing roles assigned to each group. <clears throat> the employers, made up of the board of directors and major shareholders, are the ones who do all the important decision-making. On the production side, they are the ones who decide what will be produced, where it will be produced, how many workers will be employed, and even how long and how hard the employees will work. And despite those meetings where, as a friend told me the other day, she had this for herself, uh, where managers sit employees down during times of quote-unquote restructuring to hear their thoughts and concerns, the decision-making is exclusively the role of the employer. And this goes for the distribution side as well, how all the collectively produced profits will be distributed. Employers, of course, will replenish the materials used up in the process of production and maintain upkeep with the current machines and technology, and they'll pay the agreed-upon wage to their workers. But after that, the surplus is theirs to do whatever they wish with. They may decide to take the new profits and expand production by opening up another location. They may choose to buy new technology to increase labor productivity. They may decide to throw a pizza party for the workers as a way of encouraging camaraderie. They may even decide to give themselves a hefty Christmas bonus or fly all the top dogs to a resort for their quarterly planning meeting. Whatever they decide to do with the surplus is exactly that. Their choice, because that is their role. Employees, on the other hand, have a different role. Workers apply their mental and physical labor to the materials and tools and technology to produce new goods and services for their employer. They collectively work with the means of production to create new products that are then sold on the market. That is the role of the worker. And as we can now see, workers are excluded from participating in any of the decision-making. That is simply not their job. 
Unlike the bosses, workers don't get to decide how many people will or will not be employed. They don't get to choose what they will be producing. Workers have no say in how long, how hard, or how fast they will work. On the production side, workers have no vote. But the same goes for the distribution side as well. Despite the workers collectively producing the new goods and services, and thus the new surplus value or the profits, workers are excluded from and denied participation in the very important decision-making concerning how the profits will be distributed. They have no say over whether or not the profits will be invested in new technology, given as a bonus to the CEO, turned into raises for the workers themselves, etc. Workers are simply to do what they are told to do because that is the role assigned to them under capitalism. Yet, the division between labor and capital is not only a division of roles, it is a division of ownership based on the unconditional commitment to exclusive private property. Workers do not own any of the means of production, the property, the materials, and the technology needed for producing new goods and services. And that is because they do not possess the capital needed to purchase those things. All they have is their individual ability to work. Individual bosses and capitalist corporations, on the other hand, do possess the capital needed for buying the means of production, but they also own the capital needed for buying other people's labor. And by buying both the means of production and human labor, they exclusively own the fruits of other people's labor. For example, the fruits of labor, the stuff or the surplus value the workers produce every day, every week, every month, is alienated from the laborers themselves. Because to sell your labor for a period of time to a capitalist is also to hand over the fruits of your labor. Under the capitalist mode of production, the fruits collectively produced by all the workers are stripped from their hands, stripped from their control, and are immediately placed under the private ownership of the employer. So here we can say that the small group of employers exclusively own the needed means of production, the needed labor, and the fruits produced by other people's labor. Workers, however, have ownership and, c and control over none of that. Marx actually talks about the freedom of the worker as a double-edged sword. Sure, he says, workers, in theory, although not always the case, are free to sell their labor to whomever they want. Again, in theory. Yet, the working class is also free from having any possession of or control over the means of production. This is the unique way in which capitalism produces goods and services throughout the world. Capitalist hotels, tech companies, cleaning companies, construction companies, manufacturing companies, retail stores, schools, restaurants, you name it, are all places of extreme hierarchy and inequality. The capitalist class structure concentrates both wealth and power at the places we now spend some 50 to 60 hours of our weeks. These are not democratic institutions. Decision-making power is concentrated into the hands of a few. The capitalist class structure 
is an oligarchy or a monarchy, meaning the few or the one makes all the important decisions for everyone else at work, which is how Walmart workers and Amazon employees can produce billions of dollars for their employers and go home hungry at night, uncertain of whether they and their families will have food to eat. And the inequalities of power and wealth don't stop at the boundaries of the workplace. Wealth and power increasingly spiral upwards into the hands of our ruling oligarchs. There's a reason why in 2018, 10% of U.S. Americans owned over 70% of the national wealth, meaning the bottom 90 has access to less than 30% of the pie. There's a reason why one in six U.S. Americans are hungry at the same time in, uh, in 2016. The average total CEO compensation of the largest 350 firms in the U.S. was $16,030,000 every year, which is roughly $308,000 a week. And the concentration of wealth and power is, of course, global as well, but we'll get to that in a, labor, in a later episode. For now, having laid out the capitalist class structure and division of labor at work, let's wrap this all up with what capitalism's first and greatest commandment means for those forced into the subjugated and inferior role of the worker. Capitalism's organization of labor at work and the capitalist's primary allegiance to growth not only divides us into two groups of employers and employees, it pits them against one another. As we've said in the first episode of the series, capitalists are ultimately subjected to the first and greatest commandment of capitalism, the unceasing movement of profit-making, the endless expansion of capital. At the end of the quarter, or the month, or the year, the capitalist has to have received back more than what they put in. That's what makes their money capital, as opposed to simply being money. Whereas workers exchange labor time for a wage that is less than the value they actually produce, capitalists exchange their money for commodities like the means of production and human labor so that they can get more money back than their original investment. If they don't pursue the maximization of profits, they risk being pushed out of the market by their competitors entirely. And because of the coercive law of competition, which constantly drives the employer to ceaselessly expand and grow, capitalists have a few options as to how they can achieve this profit maximization. And as you can imagine, in places where power is concentrated into the hands of a few, as opposed to, say, I don't know, being democratically shared, the costs and the consequences have always been and always will be levied upon the workers. In a system where the power of the few is enabled, while the power of the many is constrained, we shouldn't expect anything less. Employers are driven to maximize the return on their investment. Here are a few ways our bosses do that. A boss can increase the working day. Time is money for the capitalist, and the more hours the worker works, the more surplus they can produce for their employer. Once they've produced the value of their wage, everything else will go to the boss. Another way to expand your surplus as a capitalist is to maximize labor productivity. There are several ways the boss can do that. Number one, work the laborer harder. 
Push them to their limits. Increase the intensity of their work. Track their every move and minute on the job because when the worker is on the clock, their body no longer belongs to themselves. It belongs to the capitalist. Therefore, every minute must efficiently be spent producing profits. Number two, invest in new technology. Technological innovation and the revolutionizing of the means of production can drastically increase the worker's capacity to produce profits, giving the capitalist a leg up against their competitors, if that is, they're the ones ahead of the competition. But it also means that bosses may not need as many workers next quarter. With the latest technology in the industry, there may not be as much of a need to have the staff they have. In the name of the God-given right to pursue profits, or in the name of human advancement through technological innovation, here come the layoffs. Number three, just because a majority of the workers weren't fired when the new technology increased the labor productivity doesn't mean the remaining workers will see any of the financial gain. In fact, Repressing wages, if not outright slashing benefits, has been a defining characteristic of capitalism in the neoliberal era. The most obvious example of this, which we've already talked about, is the widely known fact that profits have continued to soar over the last four decades. But the real wage of middle-income earners has gone nowhere, while the real wage of low-income earners has actually dropped, meaning Despite workers producing way more profits for their bosses today than workers could in the mid-1970s, workers have seen literally none of it. It's all gone to make those $16,030,000 CEO packages possible. Capitalists will try and blame the conditions of the working class on impoverished immigrants, or they'll say it's the robots that are your enemies. But all this is just a scam to distract us from seeing how the system of capitalism concentrates wealth and power into the hands of the few, excluding the majority from having a vote or a voice. We could keep going, but you get the picture. The first and greatest commandment of capitalism is detrimental to the health and well-being of working peoples, their families, and their communities. Individual bosses must endlessly pursue profits for themselves, and for the last 400 years, their success is often juxtaposed with the well-being of the working class. It's not just that capitalism has failed to solve hunger, homelessness, poverty, and even treatable disease. It's not just that capitalism has failed to ensure everyone access to even the most basic needs for human flourishing in an era of unprecedented degrees of luxury and wealth. Capitalism's hierarchical class structure and its concentration of power at our places of work pits human beings against one another. How is the system not a fundamental concern of Christian discourse? Capitalism compels people in positions of unequal power to violate the dignity and well-being of others, ultimately for their individual gain. It feeds on and exacerbates the anxiety and stress and suffering and agony so many people unnecessarily know today. The only thing trickling down today are the costs and the consequences that result from establishing hierarchies at our places of work. Where is our moral imagination? 
A system that divides us into superiors and inferiors, subordinators and subordinates, haves and have-nots, is no system of Jesus, the crucified one, who was executed for organizing against the violence, brutality, and inequality of his day. Capitalism's first and greatest commandment of endless growth and ceaseless expansion has material consequences for the masses of working peoples. As Christians, we must say enough. We must refute whatever laws and rationales used to justify capitalism's outright degradation and dehumanization. People don't have to be exploited. An alternative world is possible, but we're going to have to struggle for it, and we're going to have to struggle for it together. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.